this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey guys, this is John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder Score. If you haven't got your score yet, I'd encourage you to take 13 minutes and complete the questionnaire you'll find at valuebuilder.com. It'll give you your score on the eight key drivers of company value. You're going to learn some different things about what drives the value of your business. You'll be able to see how you performed on these eight unique factors. Go to valuebuilder.com. Have you ever watched a friend go through the end of a bad marriage? I mean, the last year or two when they're deciding whether to leave and they haven't really left yet, but they're just, you know, working up the, the courage to pull the trigger. I mean, those are dark, dark days. I had two friends over the last year or so that have gone through this process of, of finally making the decision to leave their spouse. And I can tell you from watching them go through the experience, it is excruciating, right? It's just they're, 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 there's a cloud following them around the entire time. And a funny thing happens, the moment they decide to, to leave, uh, the cloud kind of disappears and all of a sudden they become more enthusiastic and energetic about life again. Sure, they know there's a long road ahead of them. They've got to actually reveal the news. They've got to go through the legals and all the negotiation, but at least they know there's an end to the suffering and there's you know light at the end of the tunnel. And I think in a lot of ways, there's a cohort of entrepreneurs who are in bad marriages with their business. Um, they started in business feeling really enthusiastic about their company, lots of energy, lots of new ideas, but they reached a point where they fell out of love with their business. And now, because they're afraid of what's on the other side, they're afraid of selling, they're afraid of what they might do with their life after leaving their business, they're kind of on autopilot and they're in misery. And in a lot of ways, they're like the person who just hasn't plucked up the courage yet to leave um, that spouse. And my next guest, Joe Saul Sihai, found himself in exactly that spot. He was running a successful financial planning practice, $65 million of assets under management, but he realized he was no longer happy running the company. And he got the courage, in part because of a milestone birthday, in part because of a challenging letter he wrote from a friend, he read, he read from a friend that he said, you know what? I'm going to sell this thing and I'm going to go do something that I'm really excited about. And to tell you the rest of the story, here's Joe himself. Joe Saul, see hi. Welcome to Built to Sell Radio. I can't believe I'm here, man. I'm so excited. Oh, well, that's great. And and you know, as a big listener of your show, uh, Stacking Benjamins, I uh, I'm great. I'm grateful that you've taken some time to uh, chat with us. So 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 fantastic. But we're here to talk about selling a company. And in your case, you sold an Ameriprise franchise. So you were a wealth advisor. You were giving advice to families on how to kind of manage their money. Is that is that it? I did. I managed about $65 million of other people's money. So people that are in the financial advising business know that's not a huge practice. It's not a tiny practice. It was middle of the road. But I also had a lot of other things that I was doing for the company. I did a lot of media for American Express and Ameriprise, which spun off Ameriprise Financial Advisors. Uh, so I was on the road quite a bit and uh, kind of splitting my time doing two tasks at the same time. And when, when you guys, you know, how did you bill for your your time and your services? I mean, was it like an assets under management model where you're taking kind of 1% off the top? 
Boy, it's that's a fantastic question because I think that really matters in our conversation today. Uh, we're, we were what was called a fee-based advisory service. So we did have clients that we received commissions from, from some for some products, but it was mostly people paid an annual fee for financial planning, or in some cases, a periodic fee, maybe once every three years. And then we, we received, for the most part, like the 1% model that you're talking about, where it was an assets under management deal. So if you're doing 65 million in assets under management, revenue is probably around half a million, 600, something, something like that. That's that's right. Yep, you're right in the ballpark. Got it. Got it. Okay. So, um, what made you get into that business? Like, maybe tell us your journey. How'd you get there? You know, it's funny. I was really horrible with money. <laughs> is that a great way to start? So, I decided to help other people. Yeah, perfect. Uh, <laughs> Bernie Madoff comes to mind, Joe. <laughs> that's right. Is that scary? Uh, being a product of the of the 1980s, I love the movie Wall Street, and I was always fascinated by these people who went on morning television talking about all these tips and tricks that I never knew about. You know how to how to take three coupons and make them do something magical that other people weren't able to do or how to get the best deal on a car. I thought that was so awesome. And uh, after college, I was, well, actually right at the end of college, I was working in kind of a dead end job. And I had a friend of mine call me who is a financial advisor with, with at that time, IDS Financial Services, which was purchased by American Express and then became Ameriprise during the time I was there. And he had this quote, John, he said, we don't normally hire people like you, but I think you'd be really good at this. <laughs> so, what an endorsement. I know. Isn't that great? So, so within a year, I was one of the, the top first year advisors in the country. And it purely was, I grew up in a little farming town in the west side of Michigan, and I had no idea what an engineer was. I thought an engineer was a guy who drove the train. That was, that was it. But I really have kind of an engineering mind. I don't like to be wrong very often. And I would go into meetings with, with clients and I would, even during my training to become a financial advisor, I would constantly work to find out what all these phrases meant that I didn't know. And anybody that knows money knows that it's a lot like riding a bike, right? The, the, the more that you, you know, you learn something once and then you got it. And it ends up becoming uh, this very simple language with a lot of jargon attached to it. But, um, but we, we grew the practice fairly quickly. I also think that's why I became a media rep for the company was because as a guy who's a money outsider who really struggled with money during my college and some of my formative years, I, I could explain to, you know, people that didn't do this all day, exactly what was happening with their money. I think more effectively than somebody that was, was constantly in love with the finance business and talked as an insider. And did you get paid for that media representation or, or was that all sort of to build no. the practice? Boy, we should do a whole thing on that, dude. <laughs> because, because the deal that I had, of course, was that they would pay expenses wherever I went. If I went places, you normally I could do those from my office or from a television studio. But the part of it for me was it was great. It was great advertising for me. And certainly if I'd stayed in the financial planning business, every year I was in, revenue was moving up at a 10 to 15% rate. I just have this whole, it's a whole different story. I just got to 40 years old and a mentor of mine wrote a letter saying he had other mountains to climb and he had other things he wanted to do. And he really, he'd made good money and he wanted to go try those things. I always wanted to be a school teacher and a high school track coach, John. So at age 40, I said, you know what? I think there's other things I want to do. So that's when I started the process of selling my business and uh, starting Stacking Benjamins. Interesting. So talk about about that. So you received this letter 
uh, from your mentor when you turned 40. Am I getting that right? It was, it was just before I turned 40, but certainly my 40th birthday figured into the whole, figured into the whole sale process, the middle age. It was either buy a Corvette or sell my practice and become a school teacher. You know, what's cool about that is that his name's Chris. And when he said he had other mountains to climb, the powerful thing was he, he, he wasn't using that as an analogy. He went and climbed Mount Everest twice after that. And he runs an adventure travel company now. And it was so powerful to see this guy who worked in the trench doing something he liked, but didn't completely love decide, you know what, before I get too old to enjoy the rest of my life and really seek out the things that are important to me, uh, I need to, I need to, to, to do that, that at a younger age. And, and that started in the whole exploration process. I think a thing that I did really well with my practice, I found myself being consumed by my business. Uh, uh, I found a business coach and I wanted a business coach who, who had some life coaching experience. I wasn't really into the whole, you know, the whole, uh, uh, voodoo-y thing that I think a lot of, a lot of life coaches bring to the table, not rich ripping on all life coaches. It just, it just really, I wanted some of that, but I didn't want all of that. I wanted somebody who could help me make my business more well-rounded. And, uh, she was instrumental in me selling my business too. What was her advice? I mean, usually a business coach helps you grow the business. What was it that she said that made you think maybe I want to sell it? You know, it's funny. Even before I went to sell it, I'll, I'll tell people this. We started implementing, and of course, there's firms that do this, the concept of a free day that, that firms like Strategic Coach talk about where I would spend at least half a day out of the office without my kids. I have twins that are now 21, so they were much, they were younger at that time. I, uh, I had at least half a day where I went to see either a movie by myself or spend time by myself doing stuff that was non-business related. My revenue, John, started growing quicker and the business started growing more quickly when I took that time for myself. And the hard thing for me was getting through this aspect. I kept telling her, I don't deserve half a day off. I got all this stuff I got to do. And she said, you don't do it because you deserve it. You do it because without it, you're going to fry because you're living this business. And, and, and that was really her advice was, was to spend time thinking about me and about, and, and this is starting to sound a little hokey, but, 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 but think about me and think about what I needed. And, and, you know, since I sold my business, I'd never run a marathon before a couple of weekends ago, I would just went to Maine with my spouse and we ran the Mount desert Island marathon in bar Harbor. It was our 12th marathon. So I've run 12. Congratulations. Yeah, 12 marathons now in seven years. And, 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 and I like that. Uh, I like the ability that, that, that uh, she taught me of think about my business, but think about how my business relates to me. I think a lot of people, as you know, John, you know this far better than I do. People spend a lot of time working for their business, but they don't make the business work for them. Mm. So talk to me. I mean, it sounds like you had a great deal. You had a, a business generating six or $700,000 in revenue. It was growing 10 or 15% on the top line. You were taking time off. You were just 40. You had probably a 20 year run rate. Like what was there a triggering event beyond your 40th birthday that made you think, okay, I'm, I'm really going to do it now. I'm going to leave. No, really. I think it was, I think it was just planning. It started with Chris's letter and then followed by a, by a real soul searching of, of, is this something I want to do? Is this the jumping off point for me? And then, uh, and then a lot of financial planning, you know, my spouse loves her job. So regardless of the practice sale, um, we were going to be okay because we had 
uh, done our finances uh, well enough that we could live on either my salary or her salary. So I wasn't concerned about that. Certainly selling the practice then would give us a pot of money to make up for any any uh, time off that I could use, you know, to continue to plan my my retirement vision, whatever that may be. Um, so, so we just thought through, start thinking through the, the logistics of how is this going to work? Got it. And so what was your next step once you made the decision to, to leap and you were going to sell it? I mean, was there some sort of, uh, marketplace for Ameriprise franchises at the time, or, you know, how did you go about marketing the business for sale? Yeah. I, yeah. I think this is a big thing for anybody getting into a franchise because Stephen Covey in the fantastic book, Seven Habits of Highly Successful People, talks about when you pick up one end of the stick, you pick up the other end. And man, I see a lot of people that buy franchises and they don't think about how am I going to get out someday? So it was really important to me first was to understand how, how, how to get out. And actually all along, John, I think I did a good job of that, of knowing what the restrictions were to get out. Ameriprise didn't really have many. The, the, one of the vice presidents of the company stood up and said, hey, when you get ready to leave, we're going to see who's more important to your client. Are they going to want to stay with Ameriprise? Because we think that's the case. Or are they going to want to go with you? Because So what some people would, would do, of course, is they would try to sell the business and then do a Jerry Maguire thing where it's midnight and they're they're trying to call the clients, right? And and so one thing that that certainly took place was a non-compete um, uh, that was that was a part of the contract. The funny thing about our business is that non-competes have, have generally over the years proven to be fairly unenforceable. Um, however, I took my non-compete. Of course, I had no I had no interest in competing anyway. Um, uh, but the only restriction that I had was that I could sell to an Ameriprise financial advisor in good standing, which was great for me because it was a huge company and there were lots of advisors to choose from. So the marketplace was pretty big there. I could also sell outside the company, um, but Ameriprise had to be given the, the, the right to match the offer where Ameriprise themselves would come in and buy my practice for the same terms that I was going to sell it to somebody outside of the Ameriprise umbrella. Um, so if I agree completely to terms, Ameriprise just had to either match it or let me do it, which I, which I thought was pretty fair. Hmm. And so what was your process of finding a buyer? I mean, did, did you contact some of the other Ameriprise franchisees or was there some sort of third party marketplace you could sell the business on? I did. No, I had advisors in my local market group. The first thing I wanted, I was really worried about my, uh, worried about my clients. Um, I know that in a lot of deals that I've seen in financial advisor practices, the, you know, the customers, the, the one person that nobody thinks about. And so I've, you know, these people helped me grow my business. I felt I owed the to them to make sure they got good, credible advice that I would have my mom or my in-laws take. Uh, so I narrowed it down to, uh, to five or six advisors that I was really comfortable with. And there was one advisor in particular who I liked and I, I approached him and he and I began a conversation and very quickly it, it just became him and I talking. And, and who threw out the first number? I mean, did, did you make the first move and saying, here's what I want for it? Or did he sort of offer something? I did. And I knew the, I knew the, the, the practice inside of Ameriprise. Here's, here's where I think I made a big mistake, John. I knew the practice of what people did inside Ameriprise. And I also went to other big advisors who weren't in the business of buying. I went to two different advisors who had recently bought practices about the size of mine. 
And I knew that they were much better friends of mine than they were of the buyer. So I, I, I enlisted them to be on my team and to say, okay, what do you guys look for in, in the deals? What are some of the gimmies and the gotchas? Well, what are the, where do you try to maybe cut corners and get a lower cost from people? So I looked at that and then they helped me also come up with the number at Ameriprise. There were generally two things going on. Number one was of course, a set amount of cash. Number two, then was an earnout. Deals are very simple, right? Uh, just because of the fact that we're, we're managing X number of assets, give me Y number of years using those assets to earn the money out. And it makes it easy for everybody. It makes it easy for me to get, to, to get away from that business, gives me a stream of income and some cash up front. And then uh, on the other side, makes it easier for them to purchase the thing. But, I, but to answer your question specifically, I threw out the first number. I was interested in a smaller number as an earnout. I wanted obviously as much cash up front. And with the earnout, I was intensely interested on the uh, interest rate that, that any money I didn't get up front would earn until it was paid to me. So when you talk about an earnout, it sounds actually like you're talking about a vendor take back where the, 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 the new buyer essentially is, is buying the business over time and you're, you're basically loaning the money to them with, you know, Correct. with an interest yeah. rate. Okay. Got it. Yes. Yeah. Got it. And so I know we've got to be, uh, we can't talk specifically about the price per the Ameriprise, uh, you know, restrictions, but roughly what are we talking here in terms of company value you were selling? Yeah, we're going to be on the smaller side by, of, of companies that you talked about on the show. It's, 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 it was less than a million dollars. So I can say that uh, without violating any contract. Got it. And, and roughly what proportion of that would have been in cash versus sort of on the earnout side? This is a, this is one that I think a lot of a lot of entrepreneurs are surprised by, right? Like they, they said, well, you know, if I'm going to sell my business for whatever X dollars, I'm going to get X dollars. And of course it usually doesn't come all at once. It, it, right. There is sort of some, some money that's put either on an earnout or some sort of vendor take back. So in your case, what proportion was cash versus sort of future? Most of it came later. I got 20% up front and 80% over a period of the next five years. And, uh, and that was paid to me quarterly over the next uh, five, five years. Got it. And so the 80%, what was that, um, you, you know, was that contingent on performance of the business or was that just a time-based, like every quarter I'm going to pay you this amount of money or did it, did, was there the contingency that the business would continue to perform well? Yeah, no, I'm glad it wasn't contingent on the business because right after I sold, I sold John just before. And, and what's nice is the guy on the other side of the table from me who I sold the business to is uh, still a friend today. But but he and I laugh. Um, and me, I laugh a little greedily. He laughs, uh, uh, kind of laughs in his beer because uh, I sold the business just before the big uh, market shakedown in 2008, the housing crisis. And uh, the assets that I sold him went down by, you know, nearly 40% within a year of me selling it to him. But it was a, it was a specific number over a specific time frame. The, 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 all of the onus on the assets were, were his issue. Uh, we did have a consulting agreement, by the way, on top of that, where, where obviously to make an effective handoff. And our business is such a relationship business that we needed to make an effective handoff. So uh, I also was paid a salary by him. For, the, for a year to continue to meet with clients, 
and we had a set number of clients I had to meet with over time. I had to make sure that, that you know, the, the, the clients that were the bulk of our revenue that I met individually with each of them, explained to them what was going on, teed up the buyer in a, in a fantastic way. And, uh, you know, I didn't want to do that for the buyer as much, frankly, I wanted to do that for my customer. So I was happy to stay around and make sure that, that, that my client felt very comfortable with the advice they were going to get from their new advisors. And what was that talk track like? So I'm one of your clients. We've been doing business for years. Uh, I like you, I trust you. Take me through the talk track where you tell me you're selling your business. You know, I, I would tell them, you know, if you're my client, John, I would say, you know, John, how we've talked about your dreams and the things you want to do. Well, I received this letter and then I, I told them the story that I just told you and your listeners a few minutes ago. But I got this letter from a friend of mine about climbing other mountains. And at the time, Chris was preparing to climb Mount Everest for the first time. And I said, he's actually doing it. So I thought about this and I thought, I like you. I like helping you with your money. I like this idea of money, but I also have other things that I want to do with my life. And I work so many hours doing this thing that's about 85% of what I want to do with my life that, 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 that I haven't really had enough time to scope that out and make sure that, 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 that I know what I want to do. And I don't, and the thing I always have told you as my client that I don't want you to find that out too late. I want you to have your money where you want it, when you want it as a fuel for your goals whenever those goals might occur. So for me, what I'm telling you is mine is now. I think my job was to, is to help you manage your money well. And if I can't do it, I also feel this burden that I need to help you find somebody else who can do it well. And that's why I like this person. And, what's, and what sort of reaction did you get from that? It was, it, you know, it was all over the place. Mostly in the meetings, it was, it was empathy for me. Um, and what was great was that later, a lot of these clients ended up becoming Facebook friends of mine and friends of mine. Um, uh, I, I can't think of anybody just saying, forget it. I'm not going to give them a shot. You know, I didn't have, I didn't have anybody say, well, if you're not here, we're just leaving right now. I do know that obviously every, every, uh, uh, relationship wasn't going to work and a percentage went away, but Dave and I also built that into, into the core of our deal. You know, uh, on his end, I knew that was going to happen, that he knew that X percentage of assets would probably go away. So because on my end, I was interested in a hard number that wasn't worried about the performance of the asset later. His, his counter proposal was also, well, why percentage of assets will probably end up going away. So we need to discount a little bit for that. And I was all right with that. So when, when, is there an assumed, I've heard in the world of, of wealth management, uh, you know, there's, there's sort of a, a rule of thumb in terms of what a practice is worth. I've, I've heard things like, like two times assets, uh, you know, the, 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 the whatever your, your assets under management, you're going to get roughly 1% of that each year. And that the practice would trade at about two times revenue. Is that about right? What, what you've heard? It depends on, yeah, it, 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 it's funny, John, because it really depends on, and I, this is another, I should have done a better job on about what type of assets those are, because assets that historically have been commission-based assets. If you're turning those into a revenue stream by telling the client, you know what, let's forget about this commission model. Let's make this an asset under management. Well, if, if that ends up being right for the client, because we also had fiduciary contracts that we signed with our clients, if that was the right thing to do, and, and we knew that kind of going in, that these assets are movable to become uh, uh, a yearly revenue stream for the advisor, then, then those assets are going to be worth a different amount of money than assets that are, that, that are already on that model. 
um, because those assets are going to do, you know, whatever the market does, whatever the performance of the portfolio does. Also, you know, uh, Ameriprise offers insurances. And so insurance penetration is also an important part of that, of that sale of, of, all right, you know, an average practice will have X percentage of insurance penetration. What's the insurance penetration of this practice? And if it's low, is there, is there more opportunity for the advisor then to also make those assets work better? Got it. Got it. So if you had it to do over again, I mean, what might you do differently, Joe? I thought, I thought, John, I got great help. By the way, this is always my favorite question when I listen to your show, because, because I always lean in, I always find myself leaning into the radio. What would you do differently? So here's what I would do. This is what I think I can add to the, to your, your, your family in the conversation is that I would have, I got great help from people on the inside. I had a good coach on the outside, but she did not know money. I would have had somebody outside of, you know, of course I had, I had contract law people on my team, but they didn't understand deal making and they didn't understand this buying process. I would add somebody that knew nothing about Ameriprise, knew nothing about, about the inner workings of, of this. I think there was too much, it was too much inside the franchise help that I had and not enough third-party support outside who would question a lot of the little things. Like the fact that I didn't even look outside Ameriprise, I think was a mistake. Maybe I still would have sold to the same guy. I probably would have, but I think I probably could have received, you know, maybe, maybe 15 to 20, 25 more money had it been more of a competitive situation. I also, because of the fact that I zeroed in very quickly on just one person that I was interested in before we started throwing out some numbers, I think that might've been a mistake too, where I should have, I should have been more competitive about that bidding process. Getting that competitive tension going for sure. And, and, and Absolutely. you were, as I understand it, you were allowed to go outside of Ameriprise. Uh, you just had to give Ameriprise corporate the, the, the opportunity to, to match that. Yep. Offer. Yeah. As, yeah. As we mentioned earlier, I, I just had, if I had sold it to, let's say somebody at Merrill Lynch or I, I don't know, wherever, um, they would have just had to be able to match the offer. But, but still the reason I wanted to do that to your point, John, was just for competitive purposes, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I talk about this a, a lot. You know, a lot of people ask, you know, should I sell to a private equity company or should I sell to a corporate? You know, corporate, I might get a bit more money because it might be more strategic. A private equity company, you know, they might be a, a little bit of a lower valuation. One of the things I say is, is don't <laughs> discount either. What you really want is is some competitive tension. So if a PE firm, private equity firm comes and, and, and makes an offer for your business, well, that's, that's great. That's just a competitive offer. Hopefully you'll get one uh, also from a corporate uh, as well. It, it is that competitive tension that obviously is going to get you that extra, in your case, it sounds like maybe 15 or 20 points uh, you might've, might've left on the table, you know, who knows in the long stream. Yeah. Well, at the very least, and that's the issue, John, is that I don't know. Right. And, and had I had some outside counsel outside of contract lawyers that were just going to, once the deal was sewn up, make sure that the I's were dotted and the T's were crossed. I really needed somebody that knew how deals were done outside of the Ameriprise umbrella to give me a much wider berth. It's so interesting that you, you reinforce that because, um, you know, when I talk to entrepreneurs about this and, and oftentimes I'll, we'll get into the details, like what did you get for your business? Two times five, whatever. And, and I can tell they're, you know, they oftentimes will say it on the air, oftentimes off the air there, you know, there is that sense of, uh, maybe I left money on the table and there, there's that concern. And, and in many cases it, it comes from not 
creating a market for the business. If if you go to the market, you get a hundred people, you know, interested, and ten of them make an offer, and two of them, you know, you get in a deal. Like at least you know there's there's competitive tension, and you're doing it justice. You're creating a market for the business. If you don't, like you say, you know, the 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 opportunity is is that you might regret it just because you don't know. Oh, yeah, I no, and that's that's the uh, you know I'm happy with my deal, John. I'm very happy doing what I'm doing. I love stacking Benjamins. I love the fact that I get to goof around and talk about money in a lighthearted way now, versus uh, be feeling responsible even on my family vacations for people's money. Now I can actually go on a vacation and feel like okay, I'm I'm responsible for this fun podcast while I'm gone, and I'm I'm much happier. Uh, uh, doing that. This was the perfect move for me. But, but, but can I say something else? I sure. think the biggest, the biggest driver of valuation is, 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 that, that I didn't mention uh, on that company, which I think also raised the amount my business was worth, was the systems I implemented probably the last, I was a financial planner for 16 years. The last four or five years of the business, I really made the business systematized so that uh, I, I read this phenomenal book that, that everybody talks about, you've talked about before, the e-myth. And, and when I began to e-myth my business and put systems in place so that I could hand it over, I think part of the best part of selling my business and the ease of which the process went down was because of the fact that I was able to hand the buyer these processes and these people that had these, the people were replaceable. What, what made me happy was of the people that worked for me, two stayed and continued to work for the new advisor. One became the advisor's right-hand person. It was my right-hand person and she became his right-hand person. He, he actually moved his right-hand person away because mine was better, which I found flattering because his practice was much bigger than mine. Hmm. But, but it, it was, it was that system building that, that was the grease on the wheels. And I can't emphasize that enough to, to build those systems into the business as quickly as possible. Uh, because you never know when you're going to get that letter from your friend and think, well, maybe I should sell my business. Yeah, for sure. So talk about how system building for a second. I mean, I think a lot of people know that they should be creating, you know, standard operating procedures or an employee handbook. I mean, those sorts of things, I think, uh, intellectually we know, uh, but life seems to get in the way of doing it. What was your sort of technique or strategy for creating systems? Like, I'd love to know really specifically how, how, how you did it. Right. Great. We started off with the model week. If our week's going to work the way that we want it to work, how is that going to work? And this is also where that concept of a free day came in. So I knew I was going to have Friday afternoon. I wasn't going to work. So that came off the table. Then we said, okay, we like, we just thought about it psychologically. I will have a much better weekend if I know that going into next week, my whole next week is prepared. I know where I'm at for all the meetings. I know, I know where we're at, at uh, that we're prepped for everybody that we're going to meet with. I know what phone calls I need to make. I've got everything ready. So Friday was meeting prep day where by the time I left Friday at noon from the office, we, we were done for the week. On, on Monday, we would actually begin setting up for the next week so that on Friday of the following week, on Friday that week, we, we once again could, could, could finish it. So Monday, we would take down the prior week, make sure that everything was done for the week before, and then begin getting ready for the, the next week. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Meetings, 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 meetings. And my, my, my crew had specific tasks that were aligned to make sure that I was in meetings as often as possible because 
our mantra was, if Joe's not in a meeting with the client, we're losing money. If I'm sitting at my desk and I'm, I'm leafing through a newspaper, we are losing money. So their job structure, their job was to take care of everything else so that I could just do, do that, which was my unique talent. We set it up. We, what we started off with though, wasn't the people we actually started off with the jobs. So I want to be clear about that. It was what, what specifically needs to get done. Who's the, what's the right role to do that. And then of the team that we have now, who are the people that fill those roles? So then we put names on the roles and maybe I had these eight things. So it looked like an organizational chart. Uh, I had these eight things. Uh, Tina had these, Todd had these ones, Lori had these other ones, uh, uh, that they all did. And then, and then as we went to hire new people, what we would hire for was the role. We wouldn't just add in another person. We would say, okay, Tina, you're so busy doing these five things over here. We're going to take these two things off your plate and we're going to hire somebody new part-time who's going to take those things. Uh, so that's, that, that's how we did it. Some of the cool things we did just not, not to get too far down a weird rabbit hole, but we had systems, John, all the way down to, I can't stand it. If I'm, if I'm your money advisor, if I'm the CFO of your financial, you know, your, your, your home financial empire, you don't want me looking at my watch and you don't want me thinking about the next meeting yet. You think about what I just told you about. I need to be in meetings all the time. I needed my meeting to start and end at certain times. So we created a playlist of music that, uh, that, that I knew without ever looking at my watch by what song we were on exactly at what part of the meeting we had to be what the client never knew because we would have four meetings a year, two over the phone and two face to face. They came in rarely enough that they didn't know that that playlist was the same playlist every single time they came in. And I never had to look at my watch. I always knew exactly where we were and when to begin tying down the meeting so I could get on to the next one. I love that example. That is awesome. That is good. Now, didn't didn't the music get a little annoying for people in the office? It was, it was so boring. I don't think I've listened to any of those songs since. <laughs> so what was the song that, that played when you knew you had to kind of wrap up the meeting? You know, I had this, I had this song by, by the Beautiful South. Uh, uh, that I really like. And the Beautiful South is a band that, 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 that know. And I tried to use songs that I knew that other people didn't know. Beautiful South is this, is this band from England that no longer exists. Uh, but, but they have songs that are very light, but the words are, the words are, are, are very, very funny. And it was, it was a song. It was a song make kind of making fun of Elton John and about how he writes these songs like Daniel, like Daniel, my brother, sure. you know, yeah. and it, it, it and it's a song called song for whomever. And it's about, I love writing down all the stuff that you, all the times that you cry and all the things that happen to you because it makes me a ton of money and you have no idea. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so that was your cue to, uh, to wrap the meeting. Good. Well, listen, let's segue into stacking Benjamins. Cause this is your new, um, I don't know. Do I say company or, uh, yes. Uh, excellent. So what's the business? So first describe stacking Benjamins and then kind of what's the business model you use? Yeah, Stacking Benjamins is a lightweight financial podcast. I've been listening to podcasts since 2004. Uh, so very close to the beginning of podcasting, as you know, John. And when 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 we started the business, I initially, so I initially wanted to become a school teacher and to tell people how I ended up here. I want to be a school teacher. I started going to school for that. By the way, my teachers that were my clients told me immediately in those bill in, in those meetings, they said, you're not going to like being a school teacher. I said, oh, I think you're wrong. And what's funny is, is all I learned in my classes was how I was going to fight administration, 
and what a pain it was going to be. And I was also kind of bored in my classes. So uh, I started, I had these, these other people that were financial planners that were friends of mine that were in media. And they started asking me to write their television scripts, to write their, write their, uh, their newsletters to their clients. And so I started doing that on the side and very quickly I was making as much on an hourly basis as a, as a first year teacher was making. And I was in shorts and a t-shirt. And then I realized that there was this piece of money that I really liked the media part that, as I've mentioned later, never paid me anything when I was doing it for Ameriprise that all of a sudden I thought could, could pay me. And, uh, and so as I was listening to podcasts, I never really wanted to make one until one day I realized there was a big, big niche that I was looking for that wasn't being filled. And that is, I love, I love this old NPR show called car talk. Are you familiar with car talk? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So these two guys click and clack for people that don't know the show. One of the guys just passed away. Huge show on national public radio. It's ostensibly about cars, but you never learn crap about a car. You don't, you don't learn anything about a car and you have so much fun and, and uh, people love the show. And I thought there's lots of gurus. There's, there's, you know, Susie Orman, there's Kramer, there's, uh, Dave Ramsey. There are people talking seriously about money. There's financial advisors on that are giving serious advice, but there's nobody doing this lightweight surround sound that those are the kind of shows I listen to. I like comedy shows. I like travel shows. I like shows that are pretty light. So immediately our format was we're going to be the show where we talk about headlines, about things that are going on in the financial industry, in the financial planning business. We will we'll talk about the importance of good advisors and about good financial planning habits, but that's not the point of the show. The point of the show is for us to create this, this community of people that are serious about money, but they don't want, they want it as entertainment. Um, so, uh, so the show is live three days a week from my mom's half finished basement. We have all the biggest guests in personal finance, Gene Chatsky from the Today Show, Jill Schlesinger from CBS, uh, seven-time uh, New York Times bestselling author, uh, David Bach. Like, name a, name a big personal finance name. They've all been on the show. And, uh, but they all come down to my mom's half-finished basement in Texarkana, Texas. My mom's neighbor, Doug, is our announcer guy. Uh, he's, he's a funny, creepy neighbor that doesn't realize what a bull in the china shop he is. And we just have some fun, John. And I got to tell you, it's... It's what I should have been doing my entire career. Well, it's, uh, it's good that you found it. So, so what is the business model? How do you make yeah, money? Business, yeah, it, uh, uh, business model specifically, it's an it's a LLC, uh, SB Podcast LLC. Uh, it's an advertising revenue, uh, uh, revenue model. So our advertisers pay us based on the number of listeners that we have. And we, we have two advertisers as the main advertisers on the show. We have a couple show segments that are also advertiser friendly. This is funny. We had a, you know, we started doing live, not live call-ins. We'd have people call our voicemail line and then we play the person uh, asking us a question. And that was pretty neat. And then one day I'm listening to ESPN and I realized that ESPN no longer calls it the Subway Fresh Take Hotline. Do you listen to ESPN? Not a lot. No. Okay. But ESPN for a number of years had this thing that, and whenever anybody called in, they'd always say on the ESPN subway fresh take hotline. And I went, Holy cow. Why am I just saying and on our voicemail we have? No. So, so now, now we have the Haven life hot time, excuse me, the Haven life hotline, 
why would I spend time with a boring insurance agent when in just a few keystrokes I can go to havenlife.com and, and, you know, get quotes, uh, get quotes from insurance companies and, and be done with this thing that's really important, but that I, but that I don't want to spend a lot of time on. So we started, some of our segments also have sponsors. Got it. Okay. So, you know, you're probably the best guy on earth to ask this question of, but you know, a lot of the entrepreneurs that are listening to this have been plowing a lot of their money into their company, right? So they're not working for IBM or, you know, fill in the blank bank and, and drawing a big salary and, and putting their money into a 401k or into the stock market or whatever, you know, they are investing in their own business. Right. And they, in many cases, have been doing that for years uh, with the view that in the end of the rainbow, there's a big pot of gold. Right. They sell their company and there's some cash. Um, what are some of your reactions as you hear me describe that? You know, it, my first reaction is different, I think, than a lot of people in the financial planning business have. And it's because we're all motivated by money. And certainly, John, they're going to tell you to save some money and save it with them, which I do think is important. I'll get back to that. But the first tenant that you don't hear enough people in my quote business say is that you need to lead with what you know. You should lead with what you know. And if that business you know better than anything else, then certainly that should be your main investment. However, if you think about, you know, engineering, I, I had a client that was an engineer and he helped build highways. And he said before they built any highway, they would look at anything that could go wrong first, right? And they'd they'd get rid of all those contingencies or as many as they possibly could before they built. So a big contingency, obviously, is something happens either in the economy, external conditions, whatever, some supplier, whatever it might be, and the business doesn't go the way you want it to, and now you have every dollar there. So certainly, we should diversify some of that money. So we should build some, we should build some things into the business to make sure that you're saving in other places as well. But, but, but I think the biggest thing is more of a macro view. When I hear about people plowing everything into their business, I just go back to me and I think I spent a lot of time making me work for my business, but I never really thought about the business working for me. And when my coach helped me turn that around, I think my view of the business changed as certainly I wanted my business to do well, but I also knew that, that the business was there to serve me first. Such a, such sage advice from your, from your coach for sure. <laughs> I don't know about that, but that's my experience. How about that? Yeah. Yeah. No, no, for sure. For sure. So one of the things that, that I think a lot of financial advisors do when they approach a business owner is they say they start from the, uh, you know, the amount of income they want after they retire and then work backwards from that based to figure out what they need to sell their company for. So they'll say, okay, Joe, you know, how much money do you need to, to make when you're, when you're retired? And then Joe says, whatever, a hundred grand a year. Okay, great. So, you know, in order to get a hundred grand a year, you know, revenue, um, from your, stack of Benjamins that, uh, you know, we, we don't withdraw any more than 4% from each year. We need that stack of Benjamins to be this high and therefore you need to sell your business for this much. Is that the right way to think about retirement for an entrepreneur? I don't know that an entrepreneur is able to think about retirement. While I was certainly worried about switching careers, I can never, you know, and, and certainly entrepreneurs are a huge group of people, right? But I don't, I just don't see many entrepreneurs really even grasp the concept of retirement because they can't think about just sitting down. 
for me, I love what I do. I want to do it forever. But I think I have to hire a financial advisor to do specifically what you talk about because of the fact that now as an advisor, their job is to help you set this, what I think of as a minimum standard, right? So what's the minimum standard that I'm going to be okay with uh, as my, as my biggest downside. So I'm not looking at as the top I'm looking at it is if everything else goes wrong and I can't do all the wonderful things that I want to do business wise or, 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 or otherwise, um, what's the X basis I have to need. And I think you do have to work backwards to do that. So I'll agree with that statement with those caveats. Mm-hmm. And, and where are you at on this kind of 4% rule and 3% rule? I've heard it's down to 3% now because inflation so, or interest rates are so low. Do, do you believe in a rule like that? You know, here, yes. Number one is, is that I do. And I think the 4% rule is, is fine, alive and well, but, but I, but I also know that so many things change over the years in your own, in your own life that I'll tell you what I don't like about the 4% rule. People that get, they get hung up on, well, I can take 4% of my money out of my nest egg and live on that for the rest of my life. I think you're missing out because a lot of studies have, have shown that you can spend more than that when you're young, only because of the fact that when you're older, you're, you get very quickly restricted, unfortunately, by, by health, and then you can't travel as much. You can't do a lot of the things that you want. So you, you could even possibly go higher than that 4% number and probably go higher than that in the early years. Full well knowing, by the way, John, that you're going to have to back down well below that in your later years. The other thing that that brings up, by the way, you know, we're all, all of us hate this next word. I'm going to say annuities. We can't stand it. I, I, I hate it. You know, I throw up a little bit in my mouth when I say annuity, but annuities are becoming really important, but it's a different type of annuity. They're showing that especially studies are showing that, especially for people that, that, that have done a good job of accumulating wealth, like most entrepreneurs I know have people that have done a great job are living much, much longer than our parents and our grandparents did. And the biggest problem that certified financial planners have today is the fact that you think you're going to live to 90 and they think you're going to live to 110. And, and that extra 20 years, I think that's where these, we're going to see over the next 10 years, I think it's where financial planning is headed. We're going to see annuities re-enter the picture, but there's some of these great new fintech firms that are coming out with very, very low cost annuities that give you a set reliable income stream, not these, you know, this junk that, that, that these sleazy salespeople are selling, uh, that can go a long way to helping people deal with the fact you're going to live a lot longer than you think you are. Good advice. It's certainly not an area that we spent a lot of time on in Built to Sell Radio, <laughs> but I, you know, I had to ask the guru for uh, a couple of tips for, for us as, uh, as entrepreneurs, uh, Stacking our own Benjamins, hopefully. Uh, Joe, where can people reach you? Yeah, uh, so uh, say hi to me on Twitter. I'm Average Joe Money. The show is every Monday, Wednesday, Friday. You find that wherever better podcasts are sold or or or, or downloaded. <laughs> yeah, Stitcher, Google Play, iTunes, all the normal places. You'll find us there, and of course, our home base is StackingBenjamins.com. By the way, thanks for having me on to do this. I never get to talk about this part of my life, and it was such an exciting time selling the business. And there's so many things when I listen to your show, I, I think if I'd been listening sooner, it would have been so great, but hopefully I was able to add to the conversation a little today. Well, you're very great, gracious, Joe. Thanks for joining us. Thanks.
Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W.